All right. I think we're good. I think we're good. Yeah, we're good. All right. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Making Noise podcast. My name is Adam Kanawha. I am the host. Um, really excited to to present this to you, for you to be here. Um, if you're new, please like and subscribe if you're watching on YouTube. If you're listening on uh, your preferred platform of choice for podcasts, please follow and download the episode. Um, if there are any platforms you would like me to put the uh, podcast on to be featured, I'll gladly do that. Please contact me, let me know. Um, I'll see what I can do. Hopefully it can, you know, it's been pretty easy so far. So hopefully there are no barriers to, I don't know, be featured on whatever platform for podcasts. We'll see. Um, I wanted to make a couple announcements for this week. So first thing is on my website, adamkanaw.com, I added a resource page. And on this page, I document all of the different media that is mentioned in each episode. So for example, when someone mentions a movie, book, um, types of art, YouTube videos, I provide the link to that source and where you can go purchase it or watch the video. And I also give a little blurb about the context in which it was mentioned and why it was suggested. So uh, I'm continuously updating that with each episode. And I'm also um, publishing clips each week from each episode. So to give you little snippets about conversations that took place uh, with each guest. Uh, so yeah, go to my website. You can check that out. Uh, another announcement. This Tuesday, January 19th at 7.30 Central, P Central Standard Time, PM, uh, New Music Chicago presents Jonathan Hannah. Yeah, I definitely didn't say that last name correctly. I'm sorry, Jonathan. We've never met, but uh, I don't mean to butcher your name there. His last name is spelled H-A-N-N-A-U. So it's Hannah with a U at the end. Yeah, missing, missing the pronunciation. Uh, so the performance on Tuesday is Jonathan's presenting his work for piano titled Pieces I Wrote on a Cold Winter Night. And it's in seven movements. So... I think it'll be an interesting uh, and exciting performance. It'll be live streamed on YouTube for free, so you can watch it from the comfort of your home. And uh, yeah, third announcement, I'm opening up my guitar studio. So if you're interested in guitar lessons, please contact me. I would love to help you develop your skills and get you to the point of playing the music that you want to play. Uh, I offer three different payment options. There's weekly rates, which is at full price. There's monthly rates, which is at 5% discount and quarterly every three months, which is at an 8% discount. So there are different payment options uh, based on whatever needs might fit you best. So please contact me. Uh, and then that's all for announcements. Yeah. So this episode, episode 13 features Matt Henson. Matt Henson is a double bassist and he's in Alinea Ensemble. Uh, if you've never heard of Alinea, they were on episode 11 of the podcast, and I'll put that somewhere. You can click it and go watch it. Um, Matt was on because he unfortunately couldn't be a part of the episode when the ensemble was on, when Alinea was on. So I was talking with him and, and saying, uh, we got we to gotta make this happen, man. We got to make up for, for lost time. And and here it is. Here's making up for it. You know, he's the missing piece to the the Alinea puzzle, if you will. Um, and yeah, in this conversation, we talk about 
what it's like moving across country during the pandemic. We talk about uh, finding ways to communicate to non-musicians about what the music is that we perform and play and write. Uh, we talk about baseball. We talk about Philip Glass's memoirs or his memoir. Um, yeah, we, we talk about all kinds of stuff. So uh, I hope I hope it's something that, you know, you get a lot out of and you enjoy. And yeah, like I said, please like and subscribe. And thank you for watching and or listening. All right, we'll see you soon. My name is Adam Fennell, and I am a collaborative composer. Join me in the search for a career in classical music. This is the Making Noise podcast. I have this, I have this mess going on down here. Uh, I just, I just kind of throw this stuff all in a duffel bag when I'm, when I'm traveling with it, and it, it turned my power strip off. Oh God. So, yeah, that that one's on me. <laughs> it's all good, man. There, there's yeah. such a, there's so much like with all this back and forth being a musician, you know, and you need to carry your equipment and stuff. There's so much room for error. Yeah, for sure. And like, I don't know, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a hardware guy by any means. Um, I, I mean, I just, I have this stuff because, you know, we, this is how we're performing now, but, um, I don't know how it works. And, um, we were trying to figure it out for like 10 minutes the other day and I hadn't, put the power supply into the interface uh-huh and so yeah that's on me that's, <laughs> that's all right yeah i i go through this sort of stuff too i mean like i have a pretty straightforward setup for the most part like my microphone is a usb connection so it can just go straight into my laptop mm-hmm. um i should put i should plug in my interface but i i haven't hooked it up <laughs> yeah um I I sort of uh, went, you know, in the in the spirit of not knowing anything about this, I went a little bit too far on getting this, um, but my parents paid. Oh, beautiful, Help. beautiful. <laughs> yeah. No, I would I would be going for the for the twenty dollarest USB microphone I could find if um, if I didn't have a little bit of help. But um, so I just got this. It was a re- recommendation from someone at the school, and I took it out of the box and I was like, Oh God, here we go. (laughs) I have, I have put myself in a world. I don't understand. Did Uh, it come with an instruction manual, like the physical copy? Yeah, it did. So, um, and like, I, I mean, I know what everything plugs into. So that was a start, but, um, yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's important. I mean, my, my, uh, my mom for my I think it was my birthday last year got got me and my girlfriend a printer and uh the printer didn't come with a physical manual it was like a pdf you had to download on the website yeah and I I just I'm like this is so inconvenient man like (laughs) yeah just just put it in there yeah yeah Yeah, I paid I paid good money to not have to use my own paper for this instruction manual (laughs) Uh, yeah that's kind of funny it's like a printer we purchased the printer and in order for us to have the manual we have to download it which then might mean we'd have to print it then you know well i mean it's a it's a instant instant affirmation that the printer does indeed work so that's true that's true um are you are you a car person at all not even a little bit um in in terms of like knowing how to work on them 
Is, is that your question? Not really. I mean, like, you don't have to know how to work on them in order to know what I'm about to say. But supposedly, uh, for the last couple of years, they stopped including spare tires in cars. Huh. I don't know if that's true or not, but... Um, well, I have a... I have a... Actually, I have a 2019 car, and I don't know if it has a spare tire or not. I haven't... I know it comes with, like, a jack and and tools, like the the tools that come in the car, the siphon and whatever, but I don't know if there's a tire in there. What kind of a car is it? It's a Jeep. Okay. Like a Wrangler? Uh, it's a Cherokee. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to be rolling around San Diego in a Wrangler, but <laughs> it doesn't necessarily hold the base super well, so. Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so for anyone who, who will be watching this or listening, uh, Matt is... Uh, double bassist in Alinea, who was in epi- on episode 11 of the podcast and uh this this episode right here is is we're making up for lost time because matt couldn't be on the episode so i was like we, we got to get you in here man yeah. <laughs> yeah i'll tell you i'll tell you what happened um and this is you know this is um i guess th- th- this one's on me yeah I, there's no there's no other way to spin it but um I got an email a couple days before the podcast from a teacher I had saying, oh, just a reminder, this project is due on Friday. And I was like, what do you mean a reminder? This is the first I'm hearing of this project that's due (laughs) on Friday. And the project was to sit in on, um, the project was to sit in on a class taught by another instructor and you know it was a class on teaching so sit in on a class you know write a review what you like what you don't like um this that and the other and um so i've never gone to this school under normal circumstances i've only gone to gone to ucsd under um the zoom circumstances so the only teacher that i know is um the bass teacher here and so i asked him you know what what are you up to and um and he said oh the only the only thing i have is and it was like the exact times that we had scheduled for the podcast i was like oh <laughs> after 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 we went back and forth for oh god weeks just like trying to get uh, seven schedules to line up and we finally found it and then two days before it just fell apart but this was my um this was my reminder on how important it is to read and actually know what's in the syllabus mm. because the project had not been mentioned, but it sure was in the syllabus waiting for me. Um, but I wasn't the only one that made that mistake. We have a, we have a discord chat for that class. And as soon as that email came out, it was like, we have a project. <laughs> Everyone's like panicking. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that that's such a, a common mistake that all of us make like, I know at the beginning of the semester, I would, I would be very thorough with the syllabus and read it for each, each class I was in. And then as the semester would go on, I'd be like, oh, my God, this thing's due on Tuesday. Or I have to read 80 pages in three days. Like, Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's so easy to look at something that's down on the bottom of a syllabus and be like, we're never going to get there. But in reality, it's like seven weeks away. So Oh, it comes so fast. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, especially we're in we're in quarters here, so I mean, s- syllabus day is ten weeks from the final, mm. and and that's it. So I've I've never been I've been through three different um, 
uh, institutions, and I've never had quarters before. I've always had semesters. Um, yeah, it's it's weird. Um, first of all, it went it went super fast. Um, it goes super fast in the forward direction, but then when you're at the end looking that way, it's like, oh my gosh, like that's a lot of change to pack into ten weeks. Um, but particularly for the class that I was teaching. Um, but uh, the thing that I assume is weird, I'll find out in what is nine weeks now, is um, spring break and then we come back and we have a whole new schedule of classes, mm. um, which is uh, certainly not what I'm, what I'm used to. But also we started, let's see, what was, what was last Monday? Um, the third? I don't know. Uh, the fourth. Yeah, we we started we started classes on January fourth. My NEC friends, they're like, we start in the last week of January. And yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Like in an airplane on New Year's Day, going going back to have like one day to one day to hit the ground, or I guess two days to hit the ground, and then um, here comes school again. Yeah. <laughs> Just sneaks up on you. How how long was your winter break? Oh, here I, now that I have my calendar open. Um, so the last thing that I did was I proctored, I guess proctored is um, the final four um, for the class that I was teaching on the sixteenth, mm. and then got back on the fourth. So that's one, two. That's less than three weeks. Mm. Like what, like two and a half weeks, maybe? Yeah, but, I mean, uh, see, we graduated NEC near the beginning of May, and then I didn't have anything again until October. Um, mm. So summer break was like two summer breaks for me, going from a school that does semesters to a school that does quarters. Um, so, I mean, that was nice. Uh, yeah, gives you a lot more time to do whatever you want to do. <laughs> yeah, a lot, a lot more time to move to a different corner of the country during a pandemic is what it ended up being. What was that like, man? Because you, you're you're originally you're you're not from Boston, right? No, I'm from Atlanta. Are oh, you from Atlanta? Uh, yes. Oh my god! <laughs> so I went, I went vertically corner to corner and now i'm going across so so everybody keeps telling me they're like uh, you gotta you gotta land in seattle and i'm like all right <laughs> yeah it's true um <laughs> or or actually alaska oh that would be see i've been reading i don't have it usually i have it on my desk um i've been reading john luther adams new book um and it's called you know uh music solitude alaska Mm. Um, you know, and I'm, I, I say I've been reading it. I'm like two chapters in, so I can't like speak on it that much, but just, um, I went to Alaska. I was super young. I really liked it, but like listening to him talk so fondly about like living in the wilderness of Alaska, I'm like, man, I do need to, I do need to end up out there. That would be, that would be the dream. Totally. Yeah. That'd be cool. Yeah, but, but then yeah. he's oh no sorry uh, no no please continue. Then one of the first anecdotes he tells is about how uh, he you know, he he lived like 
wilderness, wilderness, and how he would have to travel by planes in blizzards that were doing this to get everywhere. And I'm like, eh, maybe I'll live. Maybe I'll live in one of the cities and say I did it. No. But that's that's yeah. that makes me think of um, uh, you, you know Richie Valens and the Big Bopper, Buddy Holly. Um, oh. 50s 50s rock artists um yeah vaguely yeah richie valens wrote that song oh donna and la bamba mm, yes that one that. um they died in a plane crash it, while they were on tour mm. in the middle of a winter storm in like i don't know wisconsin or something and uh um like when you you know seeing like learning about the details behind it and stuff like that it's like holy shit that's just yeah that must have been so scary <laughs> like yeah, because like, the, so the first time I flew from Atlanta to Boston, it was, let's see, February, I think, because I was a senior in high school auditioning for BU, and it wasn't snowing, but it had snowed, and it was, it was bad weather time, and one of, the, one of the ways that you can land in Logan Airport is like, four feet from the water like the the runway goes all the way out to the water and you know i ever since i ended up in boston i've been on airplanes you know, all the time but i i i hadn't been on an airplane in years and it was like wind that was doing this in a in a you know southwest commercial airliner i, I can't even imagine you know those little tiny planes or the the private planes or whatnot doing that and i was i was like uh, and my dad was there. He's, you know, he travels a lot. And he's like, no, this happens. Like, ha yeah. <laughs> Doesn't How? change the fact that it makes me nervous. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. And then, um, oh, God, what was I going to say? Uh, oh, yeah. I was going to say that makes me question those people that are like, I actually really love flying. Like, what do you mean you really love flying? <laughs> like, like, I'm not here to, I'm not here to put down whatever it is that, whatever it is that makes you happy, but. You know, that's one that, that's one of those um, agree to disagree things where I'm never going to see the other perspective, but what have you. Yeah. And then, and then on top of that, you know, that's, that's about a two plus hour flight, Atlanta to Boston. Um, so that's what I've sort of set my expectation for. And now Boston to San Diego is like four and a half. Mm. So, um that was that was miserable the first time circling back to you know what it was like to to move this summer yeah did, did you um fly like did you have to bring furniture with you or or is your was your place furnished and everything like that no i had to um i had to bring bring it with me um but when i was living in boston I was um, I was with three roommates. Uh, we were in a four-bedroom apartment. Um, Alex being one of them, um, and so a lot of stuff got got distributed in that move. And then we uh, that the the couch in that apartment was super iconic. But it was it is uh, it ended up on the curb because it was like springs falling out of the bottom and. <laughs> Like we we picked it up and there were just screws everywhere under it. But um, so basically, yeah, I, I brought my my bedroom stuff with me, and then I had to 
I had to get furniture for like the living room um, when I got out here. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I had a buddy who went from Maryland to here in Chicago uh, for his doctorate, and he had like I don't even know how long. So I think I don't know. A couple of weeks went by before he got his furniture. Yeah. Um, my mom is my mom is a very um, gifted online shopper. Um, <laughs> so uh, she she worked out the logistics of it all. She like you know scoured the internet to find scheduled deliveries and you know this that and the other so that um, so that you know. When, when I got here, it was, I think, two days before everything that we had purchased new was here and set up. And, like, that is that is an organizational skill set that I do not have. <laughs> I, could, I could have never made that work. But, yeah, I, I mean, so, I you know, I brought the bed and the mattress, and, you know, that's that was all I needed. But, like, we, we finished unloading the, the shipping container, I went to bed and I woke up at eight o'clock the next morning to somebody knocking on my door and they're like, your couch is here. I'm like, all right, whatever. <laughs> Just in time for breakfast. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so that's fantastic. Yeah. So in that way, in that way, it was a lot. Um, it went, it went pretty smoothly and I, I, I much appreciate, um, I much appreciate that, but, um, moving out of moving out of Boston uh, was was pretty miserable because uh, see so yeah, so I went well there was a lot of question of whether I was going to come home at all during the summer but then there was that that little that little tiny glimpse of hope that we had on the graph where everything was going back down we we're like oh we're pulling out of this you know it'll be whatever. Um, so I went home for a little while, and my dad and I went back up to Boston. Um, and there were some people in town, but no one wanted to be around anybody who had just gotten off an airplane. So, so my dad and I um, loaded up the truck for for a day, and then we we took it and loaded it into a shipping container and whatnot, and then. Uh, he got the good fortune of sleeping on the aforementioned couch with the <laughs> the springs and stuff, and I, uh, yeah. So that was that was pretty miserable to not have. I mean, uh, understandably so, but um, you know, to not be able to recruit help in good conscience um, made that pretty difficult. And then uh, when we got here, this, this apartment actually has an elevator. So, Mm. so it was much less, um, me and him, uh, taking many, many breaks on the stairs with the bed and the bookshelf and whatnot. So, yeah, that, that makes all the difference. I mean, it's a good thing you didn't move to New York city. You know, there's like a lot of apartments don't have elevators. (laughs) Yeah. even here in Chicago, actually, I don't think, well, I'm sure there are plenty, but, um, my apartment doesn't. Yeah. Cause I mean, the thing, the thing about, um, thing about where I live here is everything is 
a big apartment complex mm. with you know this this one has i think eight buildings and like like 250 units of built like they're they're managing like thousands of units um but you know the place i was living in boston was this one brownstone with with three uh just like three units all with this little tiny staircase wrapped around them <laughs> so um actually that that plays into the reason why that couch was so iconic um it's because when we moved in and the other thing about boston is you cannot sign a lease that is not september 1st to august 31st one year binding lease um so September 1st is a miserable day to be in the city of Boston because moving trucks everywhere, everybody's out on their sidewalk, you know, with whatever. So, so somebody yes. that, that had moved out in the building next to us left this big couch um, that we were like, oh, yeah, we're just going to take that. We're, we're going to take that. And we, um, we tried to take it up the front and we got all the way all the way up the stairs and we couldn't angle it into our door so then we um then we took it around the back and tried to take it up the the uh fire escape or i secondary egress it was it's not it's an indoor fire escape and um we got it in the door and couldn't get it angled to start getting going up the stairs. And this was over this was over the course of a few hours. And so we had started this at you know, like seven o'clock any normal time. And we looked down and um, it was like eleven thirty. And the people who live in the unit that has a door right next to there were like, hey, it's you know, like almost midnight on a weeknight. Can you stop slamming a couch into our door? <laughs> <laughs> and we were like sure thing <laughs> so then then we ended up having to we ended up having to throw it off um of the stairs that lead up to that door like there's one set of stairs outside that go to that door and we had to throw it off that little landing because we couldn't angle it back down the down the stairs so we uh in our in our haste to save, you know, a couple dollars on getting a couch, we we ruined a perfectly good couch that someone with a bigger staircase could have could have taken advantage of. I think that's a pretty common thing to do when you live on a second story or higher apartment, depending on where you are. Is um, when you have some furniture, sometimes you just have to kind of toss it out the window. <laughs> yeah, um, and th there were cars down there, and we were like, hopefully it doesn't bounce. And we're like, it's a couch; it's not going to bounce. Yeah. But it didn't bounce, so, um, so yeah, no harm done. But that then we ended up going and getting one where, like that was in this little box from Target. Hopefully, from here forward, uh, your furniture experiences are are uh, a little more easygoing. <laughs> yeah, less strenuous. Yeah, um, I have a couple threads that I that I want to pick up on from the Alanea interview. Um, the biggest one being you said you're a you're a stand-up comedy guy oh, i love comedy so um you know you know mike berbiglia's new special uh, on netflix the one where all the the stuffed animals come yeah. down and, yeah yeah and he's and he starts that with with talking about the the uh, the unique love between man and couch 
um <laughs> and he's like and it's, it's like a bed that hugs you and um i i can feel the bond growing because uh you know um i i don't know i we will probably we'll, we'll for sure get into this more but it's it's very hard for me to make a make a schedule um for for a day i just i right now i'm in a place where i sort of have to roll with the punches but then every time i get back i got a couch there i got a playstation there <laughs> the, the the bond is growing <laughs> that's a deadly combination yeah oh for sure is is um is the challenge that you're facing often with um uh your schedule with school and stuff like the you know because you said last semester or last quarter you were you were teaching a, a class or something right yeah so so um ooh, i've never been on a podcast and i've never had the the authority to say for those of you who are listening uh, <laughs> uh so i'm i'm a doctoral student at, at ucsd um and all of the all of the grad students in the music department are um have academic employment so most of us are tas and then there's some grad student researchers and um readers For those who but, don't know tas are teaching assistants yes um so so yeah they sent us they sent us this um this survey um during the summer that was just like talk about or the survey that was like we'll help you get paired up with a ta assignment that is um that's you know good for you and it was basically like what are your musical interests and i was like uh theory <laughs> but um so i i taught last last quarter um music 1a which is um basically the the course for undergraduate non-music students that's like this is a quarter note this is the c major scale um you know and then like you know week 10 we got into this is a this is a triad mm -hmm. um and so now i'm teaching um music 1b which is the continuation of that into i believe into you know um simple four-part harmony and um things of this things of that nature um so that's that that's what i was uh teaching yeah um in terms of building a schedule um i i, I hmm. the the main thing i think that other than not having been in the alinea call that i think um, was a, a big topic for this was um you know, being a multidisciplinary musician i'm a bassist conductor theorist i'm like that much of a composer um but that's just that's my application for my theory when i you know want something fun to do um but right now um first and foremost above all of those things i am a target employee mm. um, this is a very expensive city and so so i i have 18 to 24 hours a week working at target Mm -hmm. and with my with my class schedule working out the way it does particularly um last quarter where most of my stuff was pretty early in the morning um i would be scheduled you know opening closing yeah just like switching off on those so um 
I ended up being in in a really backwards um, position from you know the stereotypical wake up early on the weekday, sleep in on the weekends because I would be closing at Target on weekdays and then um, opening on weekends. So you know the weekdays I'd you know, be able to sleep in seven thirty ish for classes, but then weekends I was up at five thirty for seven o'clock opening shift um but um the way that the way that things work out this quarter classes are typically later in the day so i should be on the early to bed early to rise schedule if you will right is is that something that target um are you able to have a set schedule or do they kind of shift it around where you, you don't really know um it's it, it's not the exact same uh it's not the exact same every week um but it's pretty similar depending on what days people have blocked out their availability on just that day because we you know we submit an availability for what a typical week looks like for us but then you can request like I'm not available on this day and so things get moved around a lot to um to accommodate that so like i don't have anything on monday so um so i worked an eight hour eight hour shift at target on monday um but then i got the schedule for next week and i'm just four hours thin and then they've added the other four hours somewhere later in the week um so it's variations on the same thing if you will right right do you uh, teach bass lessons at all or anything like that? No. Um, I'd like to... I'd like to get into it. Um, but, you know, now is probably um, a very difficult time to recruit new students for, um, for you know, private instrumental instruction um and i don't know uh i don't know how effective i would be as a as a teacher never really having done that before and then starting it out on zoom um but i have done my my fair share of um uh, chamber music coaching um at you know summer camps and things of that nature um which i mean to, um quite frankly is the reason why i i really want to move into teaching basses because i i really enjoy it um and it i mean we uh, this is getting into something different but you know bass players all make the same mistakes um and it's really nice to hear them from a from a third person perspective. So I was, I spent two weeks um, coaching a chamber, a trio of three bass players that were, you know, high schoolers. Um, and th they were very, very gifted um, high schoolers. So it's not like making the, the mistakes of like, oh, I don't know where this note is or anything like that. It was, um, and then I w went and practiced that week and I was like, I have a whole new ear for for being able to assess my own playing while I'm here practicing by myself. 
So to answer your question, yeah, I I'd love to, but um, this is the point in my life where I thought maybe that maybe that's something that I can start doing, and then the same way it has tanked everything this year or last year, I guess, um, that got wiped out with the pandemic. Well, I gotta say, I'd like to rally for you, man. I, I, I think it's a great time for you to start. I, I would be psyched to, uh, if we, I could link one of the videos of you playing into the, into the podcast here, put it in the description or something, be like, Hey, if you need bass lessons, match your guy all across the world right. too. Well, <laughs> Well, you can, that, you can that is true so, so zoom with people in like uh taiwan or something i don't know <laughs> yeah that's a great perspective i i hadn't thought about the uh about the the scope of reach so yeah um i don't know if you if you are a listener of the making noise podcast and you know someone who needs bass lessons i'm always happy to help match your guy we're, we're sending out the bat signal now <laughs> I think I think we could we could yeah. uh, we could see about what kind of uh, what kind of reach we can get with this and 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 hope, hopefully help build your studio. That'd be amazing. Yeah, man. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah, I I, I mean, and like you said, you know, we're all we're all kind of going through this and uh, uh, trying to figure out like how how am I going to make some money, you know, and um, like you you know you're you're working at Target and stuff and. Um, I'm, I'm even trying to expand my guitar studio a little bit to see if I can get a couple more students. <clears throat> um, but yeah, yeah. You might not know until you try, right? <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. yeah. And maybe that could, maybe that could, um, work to balance the relationship between musician and target employee. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Or if if it's something that it becomes successful, then completely eliminate that balance, <laughs> where it's just like musician. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that would be, that would be, um, that would be really nice. Yeah. Um, I don't know. To to turn this into a conversation that's, that's a bit more about music, um, I'll go ahead and assume the assume to answer the the question that contemporary musicians always get asked it was like you know when did you know that you wanted to do contemporary music um and uh, there's this little bookstore in target uh it's a used or not target now i'm now i'm in the target state of mind there's this little bookstore in boston which is completely different from target um that's downtown it's called brattle bookshop um used bookstore with a really great selection um, a lot of used bookstores you know you get the books people didn't want but um, somehow they they get a really good selection um and i found um philip glass's memoir um words without music um and i was like oh um that's a name that i recognize um I'll pick that up and um you know I, I can't I can't say that his music is um you know one hundred percent for me. I'm not I'm not the audience that he's he's you know reaching for with his music. But um 
he's got a re- lot of really, really profound things to say in that book um, about you know, listening to music and you know what you know what music means to to people and you know a little bit of like pra- like really practical things of, about listening when it relates to performing. But one of the things he talks about in there is the point in his life where he was able to say, "Now I'm just a musician." Um, because he was a cab driver and a plumber and, uh, you know, this and that. Um, and he talks about the the point where he was finally able to say, I'm no longer a cab driver who composes, now I am a composer. And that's, you know, I sort of feel like, um, I don't, I don't want to, you know, like make my assumptions, but I, the, when you, you tag the, the, podcast with uh finding a career in music that's that's sort of where i feel like that point is is um because i think every every musician is like um you know i i want to be a musician but for right now i have to work at target or before this i worked at the concert hall at nec um or i'm an ensemble manager or if if they're lucky enough to find something in music, I'm an ensemble manager, but I want to be a performer or something like that. And then I just really want that one day when it's like, I no longer am I working any of that. Now I'm, now I'm a musician. So what a great, uh, uh, anecdote to bring up, especially in this time. Well, I don't know. Is that considered an anecdote? I don't even know. Factoid. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it, it was, it was an anecdote about a factoid maybe. Yeah. An, an anecdote about how I came across that factoid. Right, right, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's so cool. I, I, I know I, I have that same exact thought, too. Like, the moment where I can say I'm, I'm a full-time musician, mm-hmm. like, where I make all of my money from music, and not only do I make all my money from music, I make enough money to earn a living. Yeah. You know? And, and uh, I think what you just mentioned with Philip Glass's story is so pertinent mm-hmm. and, and resonates really, you know, probably with all of us. Yeah. And, and the thing that's really inspiring about, about his as well is I think it was pretty late um, for him. I think he was in his forties maybe, which um, could serve to terrify. Um, and I, I hope that my mentioning that doesn't serve to terrify, but it, to me that it serves to inspire that like, He he knew it was he knew it was gonna be one day, um, and uh, he you know he he you know saw it through and it happened for him and um, I think that I I it's been several years since I read the book but I believe that one of the other things that's mentioned is he writes like I said for a very niche audience, um, but he didn't he didn't compromise that for popularity, which Mm. is something that I think is really, really important about who he is as a composer. Yeah. That says a lot about, um, his, his, uh, remaining true to his art and his craft. And, and not to say that if you shift at all, that means you're no longer remaining true. I mean, you know, it's a common thing for us people, uh, 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 when when we're fans of a musician, like let's say I don't know, um, I'm just gonna say Portugal the Man because I've been a fan of them for a while. Mm-hmm. Like you listen to the first three albums, like since they come out, and then like years later, 
they're really well known and it's like screw you man i was there since day one <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know that that whole um loyal you know yeah purist whatever you want to call it but um that i think is a part of the artistic journey is or artistic development you know to mm-hmm. to kind of grow and stuff and so um and it's funny too that, that you mentioned how he wasn't in it for the popularity mm-hmm. which is very it's really clear looking at the trajectory of his career but it's funny too to see how now he's probably the most well-known contemporary composer outside of like Hans Zimmer and John Williams. Oh yeah, yeah, and I, I mean a big, a big part of that is you. I mean, you don't have to listen for very long to know like this is Philip Glass. Totally. Because um, I mean something something that I do really um, find fascinating in his music is. Um, you know, it's very minimalistic, process oriented. It's like him and Reich uh, being like the the quintessence of minimalism. Um, but the orchestration in Philip Glass's music is very unique. Um, mm. I mean, it's very, very transparent and gets this. I mean, a lot of it, it almost almost makes for like the perception of an electronically synthesized sound um, in like how clear and transparent it is. And um, so, I mean, I, I feel like that's something that often gets overlooked, but with the mix of, you know, the, the very process oriented minimalism and the, like the, the orchestration that people often overlook, it's, um, like you can't hear any of that music and say that's not Philip Glass. That's a really good point. I don't think I've really heard anyone mention the orchestration of his music. Like, yeah, I, I I'm more familiar with his chamber works. I think I've listened to like one of his symphonies, mm-hmm. um, but I know he has a bunch, which I which that kind of surprised me because I didn't realize he had written a lot of large scale works. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like reflecting on, I went to Neefnorf and. Um, 2015 Neat North Summer Music Festival in Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, and that year, the the theme or focus, whatever, was on minimalism mainly. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of Philip Glass that was played. And it was cool because um, I I don't know if the piece was the piece the play, pieces that were performed was designed to be open instrumentation, but like one of the pieces it was like two keyboardists, there was a saxist, there was a cellist, there was uh, maybe a guitarist in there like mm-hmm. you know there was like nine people on stage all playing like the same line you know mm-hmm. i think it was uh, music in fifths or uh i i can't remember what it was exactly yeah. i i might have been able to tell you right after i read that book because i i did a i did a pretty deep dive into his music but he has a he has a ton of music like he he has written a ton of music mm. so um so, I, I wouldn't be able to I wouldn't be able to tell you. But what was something from the book that you read that you find has shifted your perspective? Maybe like you said listening or um I don't know, maybe how you view the music you're listening to. Something he said about listening that was was more practical in terms of performance. Um you know, every everybody who's a successful performer that's teaching you will tell you 
you need to hear the sound before you make it. Um, but I, I can't remember exactly how he explained it, but he explained it with an imagery that actually hit um, something about hearing hearing a shadow of the sound before you make it. And um, it was after that that I was I was finally able to sit down and say, oh, now I know how to how to hear the sound before before I make it. And it um, that was that was really good um, practically for for me as a performer. Um, you know, God, it's been it has been you know five years so um i can't remember you know the the small specifics of it but that's that's i love that um i find it so interesting when like especially things like that like you you might often hear like you said as a performer um to to or be told that you you should hear the sound before you make the sound right mm -hmm. and you're like, yeah, okay, yeah, I get it. But then, like you said, one day you 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 you're given the the right like explanation of it or or analogy or whatever, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh my god, and something clicks. Yeah, um, yeah. Because the thing that the thing that often happens is, um, it, at least for me as a bass player, whenever somebody says, "Hear the sound before you make the sound," they're always talking about a big shift. Um, and how to how to play a shift in tune they're like oh don't worry about the geography of the fingerboard just hear the sound before you make the sound you'll you'll get it and then what they always say is okay play the low note okay now sing the high note but and then now hit the high note and then you know it becomes a process of now do that now get it a little more accurate. Now get it a little more accurate. Now speed it up. Now sing the note in your head before you shift. And but it, it was just something about oh there's a there's a shadow of the sound that precedes um, what you the sound that you end up making that is you know I again I don't remember the specifics but then I was like oh that is you know ten times more valuable for me to pick up on what this means rather than hmm, ba ba. So it was, it was really good. It's it, the, using that sort of uh, description. That's the thing too. It's like the, just like shadow of a sound. What a poetic way to explain yeah. it. And that already makes me feel even more like, Oh my God, I'm, I'm so excited for this sound to happen now. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Um, it, it is really beautiful imagery and, and um, I'm a, I I still I think back about that a lot whenever I it's not something that I'm like you know particularly conscious of a hundred percent of the time but whenever I like oh the problem is I'm not hearing it I'm like I need the shadow of that sound um, but um, it sort of gives me the same energy as um, when people say on the threshold between sound and silence mm. um, and uh, sort of steering away from this conversation um that phrase makes tyler so mad <laughs> why that phrase makes tyler irrationally mad 
Um, I feel like I can already picture him like getting all worked up about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you spent an hour and a half with him. You, you know the, you know the mo. But because um, <laughs> Tyler reads a lot, um, and he he has this he has a, um, I don't know the the things that he the things that he focuses on have a very um, common aesthetic like the. I, I don't know. He's he, you know he's a very diverse musician, but a lot about like the Lachman aesthetic and like the um, that sort of thing, and it shows up in like everybody that describes that type of music. They're like this per this composer's music really grapples with the threshold between sound and silence. And he was like the first time I read it, it was so powerful, and then everybody started using it to talk about Lachman and mm. Rebecca Saunders and Ashley Fury and you know uh, all these other composers and he was like he's like i just want somebody to come up with a new image other than the threshold between sound and silence which i can understand but still for me it it um it's a very resonant imagery i i did the write-up for the rebecca saunders um uh, the rebecca saunders episode of everything but the kitchen sink um and i i put that in there wait no it wasn't that it wasn't that it was um, i was writing a grant proposal and i was talking about some of the um some of the composers that we were performing as an ensemble that that year and you know spicing it up with some adjectives or whatever and um, the mercurial music of whatever <laughs> and i put that in there and um Tyler and I have a sort of unspoken proofreading agreement for, you know, when we write something with, with a little bit of um, weight to it to just give it the once over for each other. And I, I sent it to him and he was like, mm -mm. <laughs> he's, he was like, um, he's like, I like mercurial, but I don't love, love the, uh, the, the threshold image in this, in this application. I was like, okay. You're striking that chord in him. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Um, is my camera blurry? Am I am I blurry on you? Um, maybe a touch. Hmm. I need to learn how to do these things. I don't do know. You have to... an you have an external camera? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Hmm. I wish there was a way to like just jiggle it and then it gets better like uh cassettes back in the day you just blow on it <laughs> and then yeah. it's like oh it works now um game boy cartridges yeah exactly yeah yeah i was man i was thinking about this the other day i lent my i lent my game boy to a bass player friend of mine um who uh took a gap year from nec um and so he brought it back to LA with him. And I thought I was lending, lending in my Game Boy for a couple months and he's had it for like two years now, but, um, which is fine. I mean, he's, he's like my best friend, but, um, or one of my best friends, um, uh, to all of you who are listening, I don't just have one, <laughs> but, um, man, I miss that. Just like Donkey Kong country. Backyard baseball. I need to need to 
get that from him because now we're on the west coast together so i can how far is that from san la from san diego so it's i think it's about 100 miles but one of my dad's one of my dad's favorite um stories to tell you know dads love talking about how long they were sitting in traffic um (laughs) and um we came to San Diego as a family vacation when I was really, really young, and um, we are a huge baseball family. Um, go Braves! And so he thought, "Oh, we're in San Diego during the summer. We're going to go out to Dodger Stadium. We're going to we're going to see a Dodgers game. It's going to be great." Um, and you know, since we're on vacation, we're going to show up really early. And we're going to see the park. We're going to try to we're going to try to you know catch them when they're warming up and see if they'll sign autographs. You know all the things that all the things that you know make for ballpark memories. And so we had planned to get there like three hours early, and we got there after the first pitch because San Diego to L.A. took us like five hours. Wow. Um, and then L.A. back to San Diego after midnight that night. It's like an hour and a half. Wow. Just because of traffic. Yeah. And I don't, I, I mean, this is, this is a long time ago, and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't at an age where I was fully recording. But um, I, I don't know if there was an accident or if that was just the way things go. But I do remember just sitting still on the highway for a very, very long time um, during probably a summer weekday mm. in California. That's that's wild. Um, mm. I'm going to I wanted to we'll keep this conversation going, but I just I'm going to stop my camera real quick and then see if that resets it at all. I'm noticing there's like some sort of. That looks a little better, right? Yeah, that that's much better. Yeah. Okay, I noticed there was like a flickering in the background, like with the light was changing or something. I could see it on the curtain back here. Weird. Um, something that I love about what you just mentioned in your story was like <clears throat> your your family from Atlanta in in uh, San Diego going to L.A. and like your one of the things that you had to do, you're like, we gotta go to Dodger Stadium, yeah. and and what I like about that is um, there's – it sounds to me like there's almost sort of this uh, – uh, it's almost like a sacred temple in a way. You know, like you and, – and, and like I mean that in a sense where it's like when you're walking through the parking lot and you're getting to the front doors, that feeling you get, you're like, oh, my God, like I, I need to be here. This is so exciting. Mm-hmm. You know, you're seeing it in person and like – and that can even be like – a restaurant or something mm-hmm. like it's like oh my god this place has the best steak i lo- you know like that's what i liked about that story you just said right there is is yeah. uh you know your love for baseball even as a family you know yeah and i i actually have a I actually have a interesting way to steer this back towards music sure um i so my my father and my brother in particular live breathe and die baseball and um my brother collects atlanta braves bobbleheads i got him one for christmas you know he has them all out on his desk and he has probably 
seventy Atlanta Braves bobbleheads and mm-hmm. baseball cards and whatnot. And um, uh, I I've had you know sort of ups and downs in my inherited relationship with baseball where sometimes I've been like, oh, this is great. And sometimes I've been like, actually, if you think about it, baseball is kind of boring. Um, <laughs> but, um, uh, but, um, <laughs> so, um, at that point, I, I remember the, the Dodgers were playing the, the pirates that night. And, um, I really liked the pirates because, um, I thought their uniforms were really cool. And I was like, oh, I'm so going to cheer for the Pirates. And I I told my dad, I was like, I'm so going to cheer for the Pirates. I finally get to see the Pirates play. And he was like, this is Dodger Stadium. You're not going to cheer for the Pirates. <laughs> you don't do that. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Um, Committing uh, sacrilege, right? Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> and making Dodgers fans angry, which is probably worse. Right. right. Um, but... Uh, uh, so, so the way I was going to tie this back into music is that I went through this um, in contemporary music in particular I went through this phase where I was just such a such a like western art music elitist mm-hmm. like so hard and it, it started probably I was in high school and went through this phase of about four years where I was just like people who were listening to people who are listening to like pop music and all that stuff that's garbage that get that out of here and um it's like the music i listen to takes brain and the music you listen to is just handed to you and mm. and I, I felt the same way about sports i was like it's easy for you to sit and watch the sports but you know it's you know the thing the thing i do is you know take more and then one day i just had sort of that um sort of a moment where i was like what what am i doing um and i think it was in my turn to really really focusing on contemporary music is thinking like like i i like this and i think that it's i think that it's something that's different to me than you know the or the orchestral music the you know the common practice orchestral music that i had been doing a lot of a lot of people well i shouldn't say a lot of people everybody has different opinions on where those two strains of music um balance in terms of you know the influence of the old on the new and i'm sort of i i started to get into you know the the aesthetic of or I sh- the aesthetics, plural, of um, contemporary music, because there are many. And I was like, I, you know, I think this is this is pretty different. Um, and then I started seeing, looking back and seeing, not everybody in the you know common practice Western Western art music tradition was feeling the way that I had felt about you know like my music is academic and yours sucks. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, some of them, and I, I got a perspective on like, what was I, you know, why, why had I thought that I had found the, the music that makes you smarter or 
superior or whatever. And why did I think that it was so mutually exclusive from enjoying other things? Um, I all, tying that back to that, I just I went through this phase where I was like, they're so into sports and just sitting by and watching. <laughs> but the, now I, yeah, I watched I think every game the Braves played this season um, up until heartbreaking. Heartbreaking game seven loss in the playoffs. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then that was to the Dodgers. The Dodgers won the World Series. And now here I am in Southern California. It's <laughs> like, go Braves. But I'm in San Diego and the, the Dodgers beat the Padres right before that. So I'm in a place where I can sort of sympathize with with a little bit of distaste towards the Dodgers. You'll have to humor me on this because I don't know baseball all that well. So is that the yeah. Padres, is that San Diego's team? Yeah, the the Padres are San Diego's team and then Los Angeles Dodgers, Atlanta Braves. Um, mm. And the Padres were a real story this year because um, the Padres historically, at least as long as I can remember, haven't been very good, mm. but they had a couple rookies that or rookies and young guys that just took off this year and they went to so the way the playoffs are set up is there's the national league and american league division series championship series and then the world series um, and then they added a round to that this year because of covid so there were four rounds of the playoffs and the dodgers knocked out the Padres in the third round from the end and the Braves in the, the next round to the end. And so um, with the being a you know, lifelong Braves fan um, and then now being in San Diego, I am, I'm in the presence of some really good baseball right now. And it's, uh, it's a great time to have moved to San Diego. That's great, man. That's like the perfect place for you then. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the Padres, because it, now it's the baseball off season and everybody's making their big trades and whatnot. And the Padres are stacking up with their trades hmm. and somehow they are managing to get really good players, really cheap. That makes me think, I mean, like, you know, you, you probably, uh, as a baseball fan might not be as, as, a uh, psyched or anything like that but that movie moneyball oh yeah i i haven't i haven't seen it i r realized like just recently that it's on netflix so i'm gonna i'm gonna watch it um but my my brother read the book and he's uh like he doesn't read but he was like book about baseball <laughs> um, i'm there yeah and you know he's uh he loves the like the economics of baseball and mm. stuff like that. Like he can always tell you how much somebody's getting paid, or you know, like, oh, why don't why doesn't this team just get this person? They're like, well, that guy's contract is you know, and this team's salary cap. I don't. But so yeah, that's that's right down his alley, um, or right up his alley. However, people say that. Mm. Um, but anyways, so I think I cut you off in your your comment on Moneyball. Oh, no, no. I was just, it made me think of that because you said how uh, they're getting a lot of players to cheat. Oh, yes, yes. And that yes. was sort of the, the idea with the movie Moneyball where they were getting non-conventional players who 
like you know like the pitcher that they got had a weird way of pitching the ball mm -hmm. and um uh and it was like the fraction of a price the price of what their like lead main player was whatever yeah 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 um the team that the team that does that or did that this year is the the tampa bay rays mm. um they lost the world series um which is you know uh makes them second place in all of baseball i guess but um there were players on the dodgers that were getting paid more than the entire tampa bay starting team really like like single players on the dodgers was getting paid more than the entire team yeah because i mean uh, you know baseball teams all have different amounts of money to work with and right. so um the the teams that have a lot of money are the teams where the people are so uh the yankees and the dodgers can just bully the rest of major league baseball with money mm -hmm. and so seeing seeing a team like tampa bay that's you know that's not a huge city that's not a city with a huge baseball following but seeing them be able to um you know make this little team with what they got that's you know um pretty unconventional mm. and then go to the world series that was that was really nice and they beat the yankees <laughs> so there, there's your, your classic underdog story or like david and goliath yeah yeah, uh, yeah. so it's baseball was really fun this year especially since you know i couldn't go anywhere back to my relationship building lovely couch <laughs> yeah um baseball was a really nice thing to have this year um you know but obviously I just had to bring in that little bit of selfishness. That's like, why do they get to do their thing? But I don't get to do my thing. Um, I think we all, we all have to bring that in at some point, you know, the, it, cause then you, 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 you recalibrate in some capacity after that. Yeah. You know, Self-reflection takes place very shortly after that. <laughs> yeah. Cause it, it was sort of just this, this um, upsetting idea I had. That's like, Major League Baseball was touting how rigorous they were being with testing and their isolation protocols and whatnot. And, this, and I'm like, music could be doing that, mm. except they're working in the billions and we're working in like three figures. Yeah. Many of us. Six figures so, if you're lucky. Yeah. Um, like, so... Like they, they can get every player on their team tested every day for, you know, less than a percentage point of what they have. And, mm -hmm. you know, I would have to probably write six grant proposals. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's weird um, being in that sort of position. Yeah. And I mean, I understand that that their thing draws draws a bigger audience and so you know they that's where they get their money from mm -hmm. but um it, it was just sort of you know just sort of a bummer to to sit by and be like well some people are getting to do their thing this year but 
Yeah, it, even even at that too, um, to kind of play devil's advocate a little bit, is that it's still not the same for them though. You know, like yeah, I, I don't imagine the stands are filled, and um, like that alone could probably have a large impact. Like it's like performing to an audience list venue. You know. <laughs> yeah. So Major League Baseball this year did no no fans until the playoffs. Um, and then they did like friends and family for the playoffs. Um, mm. And a lot of a lot of players talked about, you know, it's it's just a different game. And I think they started pumping crowd noise into the stadiums, maybe um, just so that it wasn't so empty. Uh, a fun thing about that is that when there's no fans and there's nothing to catch the echoes and then there's like no noise over it, you can hear everything they say on the field. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> so funny. Um, so so that like that's that's something that i've always wanted more about baseball is like i want this to be more personal like i want to know what's going on in the dugout i want to know more about the players like i want to know what they're saying when they argue with each other and they are mean oh yeah so mean (laughs) what do they say um (laughs) so uh, uh, the funniest one is um i had always thought of the umpires as um, you know, trying to keep the peace. Mm. But I realized this year that the umpires start a lot of shit. Really? And, and there was one player who, his name is Josh Donaldson. And there's a video of, of about him on YouTube called Josh Donaldson, the angriest player in baseball. And it's a highlight reel of him just being a total asshole. Mm. And so... But it's kind of funny. Like, yeah, yeah. There's some entertainment in that. Yeah. Um, and he got a pitch, and um, he thought it was a, a ball. The umpire called it a strike. And so he turned around to ask the umpire, did you call that high or did you call that outside? Um, and the umpire was like, get back in the box. And so then he, the next pitch, he hits a home run. And um, he rounds the bases and um, he kind of stood in the batter's box for a while just to like make a point, like to watch the home run. And when he crossed home plate, he kicked dirt over the plate and the umpire's like, get the fuck out of here, Josh. And I was like, (laughs) like, that's what goes on on a baseball field. Like, first of all, the first name basis is really funny. (laughs) Just get the fuck out of here. Yeah, yeah. But also... Like the umpire just being like, like I know that this guy's arrogant, so I'm not going to give him time of day when he's just trying to play baseball. Right. And then, um, uh, yeah, whatever. The other thing that's really funny is, um, uh, so I, I always wondered what, what happens when baseball players are celebrating, um. Like, you know, they, they hit a walk-off home run and they're all jumping up and down on the field. Like, what are they saying? Uh, the only thing that they say is, let's fucking go! <laughs> like, <laughs> like, they're jumping up and down and everybody is just, like, the pigeons from Finding Nemo, just like, mine, mine, mine. It's just like, let's fucking go, let's fucking go! Oh, man, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's great. And then sometimes the the players who, um, the players who prey on the field turn that into, um, let's go right right to keep it to keep up the uh 
keep up the lifestyle. But yeah, it's that, that's like the only thing that baseball players know how to say. Let's go. This is this is cool to hear, man, because I I grew up. I played soccer growing up and mm-hmm. I played it into high school, you know, uh, my senior year. And it reminds me I, I, I totally forgot about this, um, but that feeling of walking onto the field when the game's about to start. And I, I remember I, I remember like when I would walk out and you're waiting for the, the ball to be, you know, passed or whatever. And I remember I would be standing there kind of like bouncing to my like, you know, like light little tasks and be like, let's fucking do this. So ready. Yeah. You know, like, and yeah. like you're building up the adrenaline and the excitement and like a little bit of nervous, but like really excited. You know, mm-hmm. it's cool to hear that. Yeah. Have you did you see uh, what was it called? The, that Michael Jordan documentary on Netflix. Um, oh, The Last Dance? Yeah. No, I, I haven't watched I haven't watched it. Um, I I intend to, but um, usually I I gravitate towards comedy on Netflix. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think there's probably some comedy in there. Um, probably. Well, no, there there is. There's some funny moments where, like, while they're interviewing Michael Jordan, they hand him an iPad to be like, "Remember that time when uh, I don't know." Penny Hardaway, whatever his name was, like did this thing, and then he hands it to him, and he's like, "What?" And uh, you know, like you see his reaction in real time on the interview. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I bring that up because <clears throat> Michael Jordan is notoriously known for his trash talk, mm-hmm. and um, sort of watching the documentary and stuff, I kind of, I kind of wonder how much of that attitude contributes to the level of success, you know. Not to say that in order to achieve that amount of success, you have to be a dick. Yeah. But um, but I mean, there's there's something going on, whether it's arrogance or confidence. Mm-hmm. And because in sports, it's like obviously incredibly physical, but it's also very psychological too. Mm-hmm. You know, and and uh, and so even just like the demeanor you put off, the the aura can be intimidating whether you're actually saying something to that person or not, like you're dead, you know, like mm-hmm. I'm going to get this, I'm going to get, I'm going to score a point on you. Like, or, or you're just like, I'm so ready, you know? Mm-hmm. It's interesting. That's, that's a, that's an interesting thing to think about. And my, my instinctual reaction to this is to say that's probably amplified in sports a lot more than, um, say in music because there's an opponent Mm -hmm. um but i think that that's that attitude is is very valuable in music um to to like have that very head down gung-ho thing of not like like i'm gonna crush you or you know like i'm gonna you know like i'm gonna win but yeah like this very seriousness about like like i've got to work like um i i always love when people who have no experience with music realize that it's hard mm-hmm. um uh, I, lo- I love when people who have no experience with contemporary music realize it's hard mm-hmm. um especially other musicians but uh there's this like you don't need to be out to get anybody, but you, you, I mean, you have to have this seriousness about like, I got to work hard or else it's not going to be high caliber. And then, and that, that's fine. But uh, like, I, I appreciate, um, you know, like, like, I I don't want to say like hobby level music, but like 
I, I very much appreciate non-professional music, but mm-hmm. like for people who are trying to be musicians and be professionals in music, like you gotta, you gotta have that fire um, mm-hmm. that, that keeps you going there. Um, <laughs> this, I actually, I just thought of a funny story though. Um, while I was saying that. Um, Please love to hear it. <laughs> uh, so working at tar- target has, had one benefit to me as a musician mm-hmm. and it has been to explain what I do to people who are non-musicians. I've had to get really good at that. Um, because people are like, you know, okay. So people are like, Oh, well, once you start performing concerts, maybe we'll come see you. And I'll be like, I would very much appreciate that. But I need you to know that it's not what you're thinking it's going to be. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, you know, when I'm just joking around, I'm like, so it's, I, I guess you could call it contemporary classical music or like experimental classical music, which means like classical instruments, but the music is weird and bad and people are like, ha ha ha, that's so funny. Um, right, right. Or, or like when people are like serious about wanting to know what I, you know, what contemporary or experimental classical music or Western art music and, I'll say, so, you know, think of the Mona Lisa and then think of a Jackson Pollock. And the Mona Lisa is very meticulously painted. The lines are excellent. It's very representative of the subject matter. That is, you know, a Beethoven symphony, if you will. Think of a Jackson Pollock and how, you know, there it's completely non-representative of anything. Um, you know, there's, there's no, I mean, there's, there's certainly form to it and there's intention to it and idea to it. But if that was translated into sound, it would be something you, that's not as organized and aesthetically pleasant, if you will. Um, so that, that's sort of the description I have for people who genuinely want to know what I mean when I say contemporary experimental music. Um, mm. like because people are typically more familiar with painting um so i explained this to one of my coworkers, and she said oh yeah i remember i had to go to a, a ucsd concert for um i had to go to a ucsd concert for extra credit one time and the whole time i was thinking oh god i could do this and i was like i was like you have no idea (laughs) yeah um so i told this to i told this to one of my buddies at the one of the ucsd percussionists um and he thought it was funny and he's like he's like yeah you could make that squeak but could you make that squeak in the right place Mm. i'm like that's good in the right way yeah um because i mean at a certain point like a lot of what i do is flail at my instrument Mm-hmm. but I flail at my instrument with purpose and that's what that's what keep, keeps me flailing um, <laughs> yeah I like the I like the flailing I mean it makes me think of like uh, any other profession it's like you're a pilot it's like yeah I, I just point this big metal object in a specific direction yeah you know but and it's like, got to be that direction to uh, like no variation from the hundredth of the degree or else, you know, whatever. 
Um, yeah, there's a lot of meticulousness to it, and the, like yeah. same thing in contemporary music. Yeah, it's uh, it's this is to say that um, going back to you know what I was saying about um, people not realizing it's hard. I, I get you know a lot of people who don't do contemporary music think the same thing. You know, it's just like you are. Um, you know, I'm playing with a, you know, the perfect sound and the, the perfect intonation and, you know, what, and you're over there squeak, 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 squeak. And I'm like, yeah, but like you're playing with perfect and sound and the perfect intonation and all this stuff to, um, oh, and I'll pause right here and say, yes, I also have to worry about intonation. Contemporary music also needs to be in tune, but yeah. Um, um, I'm not good at it, but I am worried about it. Um, so, but you're playing that way because that is the musical intention of the music that you're making. And I'm playing this way because this is the musical intention of the music I'm making. Mm. And musical intention is something that's very, very, very hard to learn how to do effectively. Mm. And like, it's not necessarily hard to... Like, I mean, the the technical parts of playing an instrument are also very hard to do. But I could I could give somebody a bass and by the end of the day they'd be able to play, you know, a, an F that sounds nice and they'd probably be, you know, their hands would look like shit and you know, they would never be able to like play anything. But I, like they could make a good sound on the instrument by the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Just just like they could, you know, play a really loud soul ponticello ricochet that you know busts everybody's ears by the end of the day um <laughs> but you know it take a lifetime to develop that into something that's communicative and i think that's a lot of where it's a lot of where the the art lies and a lot of where the, where the hard work has to go mm. Mm -hmm. I like I like the description you used. I'm gonna restart my camera again. By the way, I don't know what's going on with this thing. It's all good. I got I got to figure that part out. I apologize for whoever watches this and has to suffer through the blurriness. Um, my mom says the same thing about when she explains people the music that I write. Mm -hmm. She says because my mom was an artist. She went to art school, mm -hmm. and so she explains it like it's like abstract art. You know, um, there's a level of unpredictability. And um, you have to sort of allow the art to, you have to sort of, you have to allow the art to guide you as opposed to having your preconceived notions as to what it will be. Mm -hmm. It's like, you can say to someone, oh, check out this artist, he's a, he's a blues guy. And then you'll have these ideas, okay, blues, I know what that is. But then if you say to someone, oh, listen to Rebecca Saunders, she's a classical composer. And they're like, oh, Rebecca Saunders, classical music, Beethoven. And then they hear her music. Yeah. And it's like, this is not Beethoven. And so that's such a, an important aspect, I think, is, is uh, allowing the art to happen. Like, being, you, you have to be open enough to what it is in order to uh, uh, even just understand or, you know, whether you like it or not. Mm -hmm. uh, and, yeah, I, I mean... There's there's a lot of a lot of strains to pick up on pick up on from this, particularly the Rebecca Saunders strain. Um, but this is why it pains me so much to compromise what I believe 
to tell non-musicians that I play classical music. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, um, because when I have no problem telling people that my background is in classical music from the time I was in sixth grade until probably about three years ago, I was, I had my life set on the fact that I'm going to play Mahler symphonies. Um, but now it just, it hurts me so bad to say I'm a classical musician or like I, I'm a classical bass player because like, am I maybe it, it, you know, it's, it's from that tradition, but I, I don't feel that it describes, you know, it describes what I do. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'll say things like experimental classical music or contemporary classical music, or, you know, like um, contemporary Western art music, because it needs, it needs something to, to give, to give someone a picture of what it is, but it just, it just really hurts me to be like, I, for lack of a better word, am a classical musician. Mm. Yeah, that's one of the great things. I, I love that you're experimenting, using your your day job to experiment with yeah. or explore. Like, how can I have these conversations with the the uninitiated? You know. Yeah. Um, yeah, and in this in this way, I'm I'm very very committed to everything that I say and everything I, that I write meaning exactly what those words mean and it's you know you know if you'll notice a lot of probably a lot of times during this I'll I pause for a really long time because I, I like it just really irks me when what I say isn't exactly what I mean um and that's another thing that really bothers Tyler. Tyler does a he does a great impersonation of me trying to have a conversation. He's like, "Well, <laughs> okay, I think I got it." No, um, anyways, but um, I was one of the assignments that I had last um, last quarter was um, to make a syllabus for a class class that I wish I could teach. Or a class that I wish I could take and I really want somewhere down the road to be associated with with a university not because or a, a school not because you know it's my dream to feed into academia but because those are the people that get the stability to um, get the stability to be able to explore their interests more freely. I think, I don't know that some of them will tell you differently, but um, so that is how I think that I will be able to one day capitalize on my, my interest in music theory. So I was like, yes, I finally, I get to design the music theory course I want. This is great. And I started trying to name the course and I was like, okay, analysis. It's a course on analysis of, and I, I thought about this title for a long time and I was like, anal I think it ended up being analysis of 20th and 21st century notated Western art music. And I was mm -hmm. like, boy, if I saw that on a course listing online, I'd be like, the title has too many words in it. Next. <laughs> but, but I was like, I was just like trying to think of a way to describe the music that I'm interested in analyzing. And 
the most concise that I could make it was 20th and 21st century and er, speaking too fast 20th and 21st century notated western art music and then even there I was like I'm still leaving out some qualification for this but I think you're heading in the right direction with it like you have the right idea it's uh it's tough it yeah. sort of makes me think about um it makes me think about like YouTube channels like 12 tone or um what's another one? Oh god there's this one guy who talks a lot about uh different tuning temperaments and microtones and stuff i think his name is john something with an m and <clears throat> adam neely is, is an example as well um, yeah but like these people who have these youtube channels where they they talk about more abstract or like complex ideas within music beyond the uh con common practice period mm -hmm. um it's 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 cool to see that people are out there doing that, and and I like hearing that you're interested in bringing some sort of analytical tools, teaching some sort of class that might not be. I mean, it sounds to me like you're you're interested in teaching some sort of analysis that is either atypical or. Um... Well, to me, it's it, to me it's a response to two problems, and and that's that um, your core music theory curriculum and conservatory may or may not deal with um, atonal music. Um, it, you know, at NEC learning about um, theory after, what is it, 1908 or whatever, um, was an elective. Um, so, I mean, I got to learn about it, but not everybody had to. Um, and I, I think that that's a big gap because I mean even even the people that that um, want to play in an orchestra like orchestras these days are doing you know commissions and you know trying to branch out and respond to the shifts towards um, you know what what audiences want and so I mean it's still important to know about the music that you're playing and even if you're going to play in an orchestra like that's it but. The other thing is, I don't think any measures are in place anywhere to say that your musical theory or your music theory education needs to deal with analysis. And luckily for me, I had a theory teacher through all of tonal theory that did. Um, he would find excerpts to, you know. We learn the concept and then analyze the piece, but you know a lot of other people that I was seeing um, that wasn't the case. And so, like I, I think that theory in the abstract is, you know, a fun a fun tool to have. I mean, it's it's cool, it it's impressive, um, but without using it for analysis or I guess for um, composition, then it's really sort of not not something that you're that you're utilizing, and mm. um, so I think that it's a, it's a big fallacy in music education as it exists today that usually music theory is not applied to analysis as it could be, and so. This this hypothetical course that I designed, I wanted it to be like 
we're not going to do anything that's not analysis. And I made a, I made a syllabus that was like, um, we're going to spend the first six weeks of the class talking about like a different parameter of music to analyze each week, whether it's, um, you know, pitch, rhythm, timbre, form, process. I think it was five pitch, rhythm, timbre, form, process. And I, you know, I picked a piece from my bank of knowledge that I know would be a good example of that, uh, each of those things. Um, so after that, you're going to pick a piece of music that you like and you're going to figure out what's going on. Mm. And, you know, we'll, we'll meet in hypothetical class and um, you'll talk about what you discovered this week. And then by the end of this, you'll have an analysis paper that's not like, it's not a worksheet where you've identified what type of, you know, what type of triads or whatever is going on. This is an analysis paper that you've written where you've applied and a knowledge of music theory, mm -hmm. um, which is something that I never had a chance to do. Um, well, I shouldn't say that I had, I had sort of one um, where there was, um, there was a class I took on Zanakis and Ligeti uh, I believe Emma talked about it and yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, lots of, lots of fun things from that, but, um, our, you know, in that one, we got excerpts from pieces by Zanakis and Ligeti to analyze. Um, but I think that it's, a, that it's a huge thing to overlook the importance of, um, being able to hand someone with all this all this theoretical knowledge just hand someone a piece of music and be like now tell me what's going on i i like that a lot honestly i think that's so important because I've, I've recognized it as well where uh or at least within myself not really um there's so much more to the music than just even the rhythms the pitches the harmonies right there's pacing, there's flow, there's continuity, there's variation, you know, there's, um, actually, I think I have it right here. Do you know, can you read that? Musical composition, craft and art. Yes. Yeah. So if you haven't heard of this guy, Alan Bilkin, he's a, um, Canadian composer. I think he taught at McGill for a while. He has a YouTube channel where he talks about everything in this book. Mm -hmm. This book is a one of the few books I know of that actually talks about composing and analyzing music outside of just the pitch structures, the rhythmic structures, the harmonic structures. He talks about things like continuity, mm -hmm. um, uh, um, variance, invariance, you know, mm -hmm. um, and, or like, for example, what makes an effective climax? You know, where's the beginning of the climax? How does that contribute to the culmination of the peak? And then what about coming out of the climax, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, and this, this book was really inspirational for me. I wrote this piece. You, actually, you know, departure duo in Boston. Yes. Um, the piece or the piece with the, Oh, um, what does she say at the beginning? There's like the one that's like, until something happens, there will be no reaction. Oh yeah. 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 Yeah, it's called I, confronting distance. Mm -hmm. That that piece I wrote uh, while I was like prime reading this book, and I was thinking about everything that he was saying in regards to proportion and like you know how long is this moment taking place, and then 
like what can i do to disrupt it or enhance it or whatever you know mm -hmm. and uh that's something that if you listen to that piece you'll 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 you might even recognize certain proportions in regards to like how long the climax lasts versus how long coming out of it lasts mm -hmm. and uh so anyways that book i think explains it really well and is uh approachable mm -hmm. yeah I, I i googled it and pulled it up so that i can i can find it after after this because that's i mean that's exactly what i'm what i'm interested in here is like there is more than there's more theory than just harmony and um so yeah that's that's really good to know yeah it's cool it's great too because the book he he uses all kinds of examples he uses bach he uses he uses anakis he uses film scores video games you know music but that's the cool thing about it is it's not style specific it's not genre specific it's mm -hmm. it's literally just what is this sound that happens how does it happen when does it change you know like more just general ideas about it which sounds to me like what you're talking about which yeah yeah i mean yeah that's that's exactly that's exactly what i'm saying here and i, I think that that would be um yeah I'll, ha I'll have to check it out but i think that moving that into the into the scope of what you know we're teaching young musicians that theory is could be or is something that's incredibly necessary and mm. Mm. I, I will say that if you start that class, I will gladly sign up for it. Great. I will be the first on that on that roster. Great, yeah, I'll uh, I'll let you know. But let's see. So this is it'll probably be a couple of years, but I'll keep you in mind. Can I can I request an, a uh, a virtual audit? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Awesome. Then I'm there. Yeah. <laughs> Unless I'm in a place in my life where I can uh, handle, like, financially handle traveling across the country and stuff, then I will gladly show up. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Yeah, man. Um, I got to get going in a moment. Mm -hmm. Before I do, though, uh, are there any – is there anything that you wanted to touch upon we, we didn't talk about? Well, I mean, we had, you know, we had discussed um, the uh, getting into the music of Rebecca Saunders, but that's that's no – that's no short fleeting topic um, <laughs> yeah i know i know we missed out on a couple of things that we, we wanted yeah. to uh, get but, into but something something that i think that we could cover i mean a little bit in just a few minutes is i noticed when reading through all of your uh, maybe this is a little bit of a longer topic but we can keep it down I, re reading through all of your bios and stuff you you as a composer really value um collaboration and it's very evident here um, like in this podcast and whatnot, that you really value collaboration. And we had a we had a chat about this at at UCSD uh, in one of our classes about like um, the collaboration between um, composers and performers and turning it into something that's truly collaborative and fruitful. And so, I, don't, I like I don't mean to turn this around into me interviewing you, but. Um, or me grilling you with questions, but um, I wanted to know if you just had because the way this conversation ended, a lot of a lot of performers were like, "I don't know how to make a collaboration with a composer fruitful for me, rather than just for the piece that they're writing." So I think it would be a nice little a nice little bow on this if you had any ideas about um, from a um, 
from a composer's perspective, how collaboration is fruitful for both you and the performer, since I know that's something that you mention a lot in your bios. Yeah. Oh, that's a that's a cool question, man. I love that you're talking about that in your class too. Mm -hmm. um, what, if you don't mind me, I'm curious. Like, what, um, what extent of like to what degree of collaboration did you talk about within that class? Like, do you mean collaborating in regards to having a um, uh, a, a mutual sort of give and take back and forth? or where it's like each person is as um, involved in the projects equally, you know, like, like, yeah. Um, so basically what the conversation ended up being was a lot of, a lot of performers were saying that when they work with a composer for business rather than in the name of like, this is my friend and we just want to you know, make music together. But when they work for a composer in a strictly professional way, they feel like their role is to have a composer tell them, make this sound, make this sound, make this sound. Okay, cool. Now I'll go write a piece for you. Um, mm -hmm. And um, I like it's it's in that piece you wrote for departure it's very evident to me that you took into account that they are all about theatrics or not all about they i mean they're very good musicians as well but they they value the theatrics and um it's just something that like reading through all your stuff i i noticed a lot that you mentioned collaboration being fruitful for both parties and for um uh, for you to account for how this person performs. And um, so I guess just from a, from a composer's perspective, um, logistically, how does that look when you are in collaboration? Yeah, sure. Cool. I, li I like too that you mentioned like more of the, the um, where you, the relationship with the person isn't like a personal friendship. You kind of just met them. Mm -hmm. That's exactly how it worked out with me and Departure Duo, actually. Um, mm -hmm. I just cold emailed them. I heard about their project from our friends and uh, showed them some of my stuff. And, and then we, we developed a relationship together. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> For me, this is all like my own, you know, perspective and how I operate and stuff. But um, for me, it's it's important that I understand as much what the performer what the person what the person is interested in um i don't want to say capable of doing but um see i'm getting into weird territory with like wording uh i guess willing to do mm -hmm. you know like so for example yesterday i had a i actually had a video call like this with someone who i'm collaborating with right now my buddy Thomas Morris, he's an oboist in uh, uh, in Michigan. And one of the first things I asked him was, what's a multiphonic that you play that you know already that can, uh, that is reliably responsive and has a, a wide dynamic range? Mm -hmm. And so the idea behind, like, I, I purposely asked that question because I could go through all kinds of books and try and find a specific multiphonic, like, oh, play this one because it has this pitch content or whatever. 
but I'm coming, I was coming from it from the perspective of what is something for him that is already natural to his playing, right? And so to flip that a little bit for the performer's perspective is have a couple things in mind that you already is germane to your way of playing. Mm-hmm. You know, like um, one question I really like to ask, because I think it's interesting too, is is there anything that you do as a performer when you're not actually practicing or performing, when you're just noodling. And you always find yourself doing this thing, like maybe just for fun, you like, you bow behind the bridge, but as you're doing it, you're like tapping your fingers up here, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, That's an interesting thing. And that's also something that you just naturally do. Mm -hmm. So I can incorporate that into the composition because that makes you who you are. That also makes the piece more yours than like any other person who's gonna perform it. It, it's more of a it, th- that to me is more of a collaboration that because you're you're making it specific to that performer so um i think it's a great idea for or it's useful for performers to have an idea of things that they're comfortable doing and things that they have that the composer might not even be aware of mm-hmm. um and then to kind of expand upon that a little bit too when it comes to working with composers like we don't know shit. Right? Like, so like, uh, if you could um, humor us as, as much as you can, mm-hmm. uh, like if you need to talk to us, like we're five-year-olds, please do it. Mm-hmm. I, I, I personally, like I like talk to me as if I've never even heard of this instrument yeah. before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I actually said that to my one buddy who's a saxophonist and I was like, tell me about the baritone sax as if I know nothing about it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, man. Do you want me to go farther into that? I, I I can I can talk more about this sort of. Uh... Well, I mean, just uh, I know I know you said you're a little pressed for time. But... Yeah, I have. Uh, I, I I got about ten minutes. I can go into one forty-five. So, go for it. Yeah, um, and well, th- was there anything specific? Like I, I know I've been talking a little bit. So, was there anything that you wanted to kind of jump in on? And if or no, I I mean I was just. Um just the reason i ask is because you know we had this we had this conversation in our studio class about this and then all of us about how you know these um about how these performers were having like dissonant relationships with composers and then i turn around and like the next thing i see is your bio that says that you you value a collaboration that's truly collaborative like i was like that's i mean that's a perfect like perfect lineup of i i don't know if people believe in coincidence or whatnot but Mm -hmm. um so i was just i was just really interested to hear thoughts on this you know this um dissonance between composers and performers and how to you know how to make fruitful collaboration from the perspective of a composer since we talked about it for like an hour among performers yeah, I appreciate you asking me that, man. I mean, and also even just looking at my website, like that's really cool that you took the time. Um, I, I want to tack on something else there too, because I think it's important. Is part of what could be part what could be part of the disconnect there is a lack of clarity for what the vision is supposed to be for the piece. Mm-hmm. So, uh, to give another example, like I, you know, I can only reference my own <laughs> my own sort of collaboration. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, I, I worked with this saxophone duo who we're still kind of doing things where the piece has been written and now we're sort of 
um, you know, sharpening or uh, rounding out the edges. Mm -hmm. And the first, this collaboration started in May, I think. And we had like, I had a couple phone calls with one of the members, uh, just sort of talking about what they might be interested in stuff. And then we had, I think maybe one or two video calls that were probably around an hour or so. Mm -hmm. And those video calls almost entirely consisted of just talking about what the piece could be. Mm -hmm. what is it that they're looking for like why did you come to me what uh is there some sort of theme for your performance and um and then this starts to go into the conversation that i just mentioned before where it's like what are some of the limits that you're you would like to set like are there things that you are just tired of doing do you hate arpeggios i won't write them you know like mm -hmm. yeah um yeah. so uh trying to find some sort of like i said vision like whatever your ultimate goal is that way everyone is in line or aligned with what the purpose, what, what, what they need to do to accomplish that goal. And the, the thing about that too, is it doesn't have to be set in stone either. Like it can shift along the way. Um, so to reference that sax duo again, the plan was to have that piece performed at uh, museums, um, mm -hmm. art museums and art galleries. And so as I was writing the piece and we had a lot of discussions about the space itself like museums are really wide there a lot of reverb you know so um but then the pandemic continues right so we had to shift that to be like okay well this might be an online performance or we'll have to prolong it and then we had discussions about what does that now look like does it change the piece you know and so that's the other thing i would say is, is try to find a way to become aligned with uh your artistic vision of what you want and what the composer wants. Mm -hmm. Good stuff. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, that's 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 really good. Um, I hope it helps. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, you 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 mentioned um, you mentioned early on in there. You know, this is just your perspective, but I think that's a very valuable. Um, I mean, that's a very valuable consideration. It's like you know, I something that. Um, Something that I've been noticing a lot lately is that um, music is just sort of what we what we synthesize from you know the perspectives of other people and like or because you know this conversation we were having is just uh, in class it was you know perspectives from performers of what uh, collaboration from composers. Uh, collaboration with composers is for them and mm -hmm. I, I i was thinking in the moment it's like okay you know all i can do with this conversation is consider these opinions and then you know add that or not add that but add the influence of that to my own and mm -hmm. so so yeah that's 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 really rich um i appreciate that yeah totally man I, and and it's an important conversation to have you know because in music school we're we're taught the craft and to be very good at the craft, um, which just exclusively means like playing your instrument, composing. And, and that's incredibly important, you know, but you're not entirely, you don't get a lot of the business side of it. Like, how do I start a nonprofit? How do I do taxes? How do I, you know, and you're also not getting a lot of the, um, the interaction, you know, um, mm -hmm. like, like you just mentioned collaboration. And, and that's, that's why I, I mentioned the whole idea of, articulating a vision together because not everyone has the same collaborative interest. Like maybe you as a performer, 
maybe you don't want to be as involved in, in like discussions and talking about what it is. Maybe you're just like, dude, just write the piece and send it to me. Yeah, yeah. You know, or maybe the composer's like that. Maybe they're like, I just need to be alone and write the piece and then I'll send it to you. Mm-hmm. So kind of gauging that stuff is so important. And and uh, and I, I think it's something that you'll, as performers, as, as um, colleagues, you know, like we'll, we develop through the interactions and experiences that we have and, and we refine it as it goes on. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we get better at it. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah man. Um, I, I appreciate you asking me that though. That was, that was cool. I, I haven't had too many, uh, I, I've had a few people kind of like ask me a couple of questions, but that was, I appreciate that a lot. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, before we, uh, before we cut off here, um, do you have any any things you want to plug at all? Any like events or some social media? Maybe maybe Alanea's got something cool coming up with the podcast or um well yeah, I'll let me make sure that I get our get our socials right. Um if there's anything that um uh you you forget to mention, I can always I can always plug it in, you know, post production. Yeah yeah um i'll I'll for sure let you know um but yeah uh our instagram as an ensemble is alinea ensemble no spaces no punctuation could you, uh, you could can, you spell that real quick uh a l i n e a e n s e m b l e and then if you want to find me uh hence dot matthew h e n s dot matthew with two t's um We've got something dropping soon, um, a collaboration with Pamela Z. I think they talked about that mm. they were on here. Um, Robbie's been putting it together, and it looks really good, so we're we're super excited for that. And then hopefully, um, we don't have anything set in stone after that, but we started some some dialogues at the beginning of the pandemic that are still still set to flesh out at some point. So um, so we'll we'll uh, definitely be keeping everybody up to date on socials about those um nothing really personally for me but um but this this ensemble is is um for me the the center of the center of what i do so that's in plugging them I, it is in coincidence plugging you know, me yeah that's that's you're you're but you know a member of the ensemble and yeah uh that's awesome. I'm excited for the for the uh, Pamela Z collaboration and uh and then and, and let's not forget to you bassists out there or you you uh um chamber ensembles who might need some coaching, match your guy. Let you know, know how to contact him. I can I can be on Zoom with you from anywhere in the world. There you go. There you go. You 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 get it from the beauty of uh San Diego till wherever, whoever, wherever. Yeah. <laughs> Well, before I stop the recording, man, thank you so much for being on here. This is awesome. Yeah, this was great. I, I was I was really bummed to miss the first one, but this was this was excellent. I'm I'm really appreciative that you had me on. Yeah, yeah, my pleasure. We we made it happen. We sure did.